Yeah, I, I've known Steve for a long time. You know how long I've known him? He was six foot four when I first met him. <laughs> now, when uh, Scott sent me an email about coming, then he sent me another email. I said, I preached, I said, I'd be glad to do that. And then I know what happened now. They're going to tell you a different story. But they said, what text do I not want to preach on? <laughs> and I'll give that to Paul. So, so uh, no, this is a, what's called the table of nations. It's, it's not intended to give every nation that there is. It's all just the ones they know. And, the, and it's a very important they get to the number 70, because this is the symbolic number. So sometimes it goes several generations out, and sometimes just one generation, as you see. It's full of unpronounceable names. And uh, just let me just tell you the strategy for when you're reading and you come along one of these names in the Bible that you cannot pronounce. You just go, and you just go on. Like you kind of cough, and you go on. Um, and I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, let me just start with how it all starts. Now, this uh, story of how the nations and where they come from and, and how they're related to the family of Noah after the flood begins in 9-1, Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah like he did at creation, blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this is like the recreation commission, <laughs> the, the recommitting of mankind to their job uh, that they were given at creation and that had to kind of start over again uh, because of the flood. And then in chapter 10, before we've had the, the Babel narrative, which Steve, I assume, is going to talk about next week, uh, um, uh, we're, we hear this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then in verse 5, uh, from these, the sons of Japheth, the coastland peoples, spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Uh, so now nations already have languages. Uh, and then in verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then verse 31, these are the sons of Shem, by their clans, the their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And uh, if you count them, there are 70. There are 70. And those are all the nations that they knew of. Now, uh, it's not an accident that the number 70 comes up two other times in the Bible. Well, more than that, but especially uh, in the Old Testament that is significant. And the first is uh, in Genesis 46, we're told about when the children of Israel went to Egypt. Uh, if you count them a certain way, <laughs> if you count them a certain way, uh, there were 70. 
And the sons, so it says, all the persons belonging to Jacob came to Egypt who were his own descendants. Not including Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And then if you count Joseph and Jacob, right? Uh, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. And it's like Israel, the people of God is sort of like the world in miniature, the 70 uh, members of Israel's family that go down into Egypt are like the, a miniature world. There's 70 of them, like the 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. The end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God, or, actually the Hebrew text says, the sons of Israel. <laughs> and the sons of Israel are 70. And uh, probably what's being referred to there is that the nations of the world have a sort of representative angel. <laughs> and there are 70 of them. And it's not an accident. We hear about that in the book of Daniel. Uh, Paul, in his sermon to the uh, people at Athens, uh, tells us the purpose of God in determining where nations would exist and how long they would exist and, and determining their borders and, and how long their history would be. In other words, God is in control of that whole process. God's in control of the whole process. And Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And now notice the point, why? Why God does that? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. God is in control of the nations of the world. Now, they don't think that that's so. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, what we call history is really a history of tyrants who are eventually beaten down and lost in history. And then there's another tyrant who comes up and he's beaten down and lost in history. That's what we call history. Uh, and we do know, we know from our own brief experience as a nation that, that, that those who go against God so dramatically in a nation, that nation gets ground into dust, <laughs> just gets ground into dust. You know, when uh, I was growing up, uh, our nation was very fearful of the Soviet Union. And uh, when Kathy and I were first missionaries in England, um, after Ronald Reagan gave that famous speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, you know. Um, a man came to visit me from Poland. He was a Christian leader, and uh, Bob Wetzel sent him up to spend a few days with me, and we became friends. And uh, not six months later, I took my first trip uh, behind what was the Soviet bloc. Uh, that trip was to Poland and Germany and uh, to Belarusia. And, and I, I didn't even know that there was a country called Belarusia. I had Belarus. I had no idea. No idea. What? 
you know, and then where are you taking me? Where are you taking me? I get, I get to Belarusia, and uh, this is a messed up place. It's still a messed up place. That one, God's going to grind into the dust probably in time here. But uh, 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 here they are, and uh, I, I'm taken to a church, and there's, this is a church, and this is in the deepest, darkest Soviet Union. It's just a few months after the Iron Curtain has fallen. In fact, uh, I, I have a somewhere in a box somewhere a, a thing that held barbed wire from the Berlin Wall when it fell down. And they take me to this church. This church is like 800. It's packed. It's 800 people. And then they take me to where I was going to teach a class for TCM. And it's, it's on a far, or a, camps, a camp that used to be a military base. Camp used to be a military base. And um, we're, we're, we're driving into the entrance to the camp. And on each side, like the posts that are holding up the sign to the camp, you know what they are? They are missiles. I'm kidding you not. They are missiles. They're missiles, and these are not, not nuclear missiles, but these are missiles that were, you know, you know armed, at, armed and uh, headed toward Germany or France or something. You know, they go 500 miles, and, and they've got two missiles, and atop, atop it, it, there's this sign in Russian, they will beat their swords into plowshares, because they, they got this church camp uh, in a trade, they had some land, and the government wouldn't let them build a children's camp on that land. And when the, when the Iron Curtain fell, the, the government came and said, we'll trade you. We'll take the vacant land. You can have this already built-up camp. And, and, you know, that seemed like a pretty good trade. And they left a pile of missiles, a pile of missiles. <laughs> my favorite picture, I don't really like to take pictures, but my favorite picture is standing on that garbage pile, my foot on top of a missile, it's, you know, and of course, the next year I came back to teach again, and uh, uh, they found out, somebody who knew something about missiles, that they, there still was rocket fuel in those missiles, they had to take them down, had to take them down, and you know, I saw God, I saw God grind countries into non-existence and, and pop up new ones in my own life. And I thought of what Paul said. You know, it's incredible how God is in control of history. Now, in this passage, there are really three groups of people that descend from the three sons of Noah. And the first one is Japheth. And all the peoples that descend from Japheth are a long way away from Israel. They're kind of on the edge, you know. And, uh, and you, you descend from Japheth, you know. Northern European tribes who broke off from tribes that are in Southern Europe, you know. Uh, you know, your, your ancestors and mine were isolationists, you know. That's why I have blonde hair and all that kind of thing, you know. Um, and Japheth is, is the people that are far away and you don't even know exist, and there are a lot of those, a lot of those. One, one day when we were, for the second time, missionaries, we were in Austria then at TCM's headquarters. And our dean was an Australian guy who was never there. He was never there, but for about three months a year. And so when we needed a decision made, um, I didn't want to become the dean, and I, wanted, I was done with administration after I'd done that at Great Lakes, and I was glad to be just writing a commentary on Genesis, as a matter of fact. And... Uh, and we had questions, and we, tr we tried to find Roger. You know where we found Roger? 
in Madagascar. That's where we found Roger, in Madagascar. Now, I knew that there was an island called Madagascar, okay? And I knew there must be some people there, you know. But, you know, my idea of Madagascar, and this was before the cartoon movie, okay? Uh, <clears throat> and, and, you know, he's, he's working with a church movement in Madagascar. And what do you do about people's like the people of Japheth. Well, you go and find them. That's what you do. You go and find them. God found them. God put them into existence. You go and find them. We must go to them. That's what you do with distant peoples only known vaguely. The second group of people in this table of nations are those who descend from Ham. Now, if you've read this story at the end of Genesis chapter 9, it's not very pleasant about how uh, Ham got started after the flood. And, uh, but the people who descend from Ham are all of Israel's near enemies. <laughs> the Egyptians, the Canaanites, okay? They're the people that re- really Israel was in, in constant conflict with. They were their, you might say, natural enemies. And, you know, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do with your enemies? Well, <laughs> uh, if, if those enemies will turn to God, like Rahab or the people of Gibeon in Genesis or in uh, Joshua chapter 9, you say, come on in. <laughs> That's what you do. Uh, but what Jesus taught us is that ultimately, ultimately, those who are our natural enemies, we have to learn to love. He didn't say it would be easy. It's not easy to love your enemy. It's easy to talk about loving your enemies until you have to love a real live one, you know, right? It's easy to talk about it until you've got to do it, right? My favorite, my favorite statement from Charles Schultz in Peanuts is, Charlie Brown says, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. <laughs> your enemies, from the very beginning of the Bible, you're called upon to love them. If your enemy's ox goes into a ditch... You say, it serves you right. Is that what the law was? No, no. Oh, no. Your enemy's ox goes in the ditch. You help him get out. And Jesus, of course, uh, told, told us that now we're not a people with, a, with, a, with national borders. We're no longer uh, like Israel in that regard. We don't go to war. We, as the people of God, have to love our enemies. And how do you do that? <laughs> well... I don't know how you do it, but I know this. The Savior who died for the sins of all the world on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. The man who died on the cross died for God's enemies. Or as Paul puts it, Puts it in Romans 5. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God. And if Christ died for us while we were enemies, how can we not love others who are enemies of God? Now that's not easy. And it doesn't mean that we pretend there's not horrible people in the world. (laughs) There are. Oh, there are some horrible people in the world. I was privileged to preach when I was in seminary 
at a little church that I preach at now on the weekends, but I was full-time during seminary, and there was a, a, a family, one of our elders, uh, they had one baby the normal way, but he died because of a forceps birth. And then, late in life, they had a Down syndrome child. He was born one day after my wife Kathy, same year, one day after my wife Kathy, and we became Bill, big friends of Bill Lockbaum. And uh, because his parents were school teachers, they started, the, it's, it's a little, little country church, we grew to about 80 people, we were about, started about 40, and grew to about 80 people, a little country church, you know. And you think, what, you know. And because of Bill, Walt started a Sunday school class for adults who were mentally challenged. And so we had you know, 10 or 12 <laughs> mentally challenged adults. And the stuff that they went through and what people said to them, I wanted to kill them. I wanted to kill them. I did. I didn't. But there are evil people in the world. And of course, when we look in a mirror, we see, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of evil in me too. You know, even a redeemed person, a changed person, somewhere in there, <laughs> somewhere in the heart of hearts, there's evil in you too and me. Not, not you guys, but everybody else, but you know. What do we do with our natural enemies? We've got to learn to love them. And then the third group are the descendants of Shem, the Semites. And these are people who are related by language and culture to Israel. Uh, by the way, the Semites didn't always get along. You know, it was a whole series of wars. The Assyrians were Semitic people, and the Babylonians were Semitic people, you know, and they're the ones that conquered Israel. Uh, but they at least had languages that were related and in common cultural background. And, and uh, what, what do we do with people who are like us and related to us? Well, we have to learn to connect with them. To distant peoples, we have to learn to go to them. With our natural enemies, we have to learn to love them. And to people who are like us, we've got to learn to connect with them. Now, God didn't want there to be the confusion of the languages. He wanted them just to obey his simple command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and things would go fine if you just do what I ask. But they didn't, and so we got all the cultures and languages and conflict that that creates. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. My wife doesn't like languages. She took Greek because I was taking Greek and Hebrew in Bible college. And uh, just, just because she wanted to know the kind of stuff that I was learning. And she got A's, but she dropped it after, you know, one year. That's it. I'm not doing that anymore, you know. And she hadn't learned any language in high school. And then uh, in our late 40s, we moved to Austria, and suddenly she's got to learn to speak German. You know, and it, it, was, it was hilarious. It's hilarious how much conflict there is and how much misunderstanding there is when you don't speak the same language. It's, 
it's, it's complicated. And that's why there are organizations like Pioneer Bible Translators and Wycliffe Bible Translators and why, uh, you know, so much of uh, time and effort is spent on trying to understand other cultures in the mission of the church. It's not easy, and it's not what God wanted. <laughs> but he promises one day it'll end. One day it'll end. Uh, he gave us a peek of how that will end on the day of Pentecost, when Babel just temporarily was reversed. And people from all nations, all around, come and sing God's praises. Uh, uh, and they, they understand each other. And the prophets had prophesied that one day it would happen. There would be pure speech and one speech and Babel would be reversed. And one day, of course, uh, John t tells us that the wars between the nations will be over. They'll be gone and we'll all be together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and be no, uh, they, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. But until that comes, we've got to go to the nations that are far away or send people to go for us. We've got to learn to love our enemies to those who we are in conflict with. We've got to learn to connect with the people that are near us and like us. Or to put it in Jesus' words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if you do that, I'll be with you even to the end of the world.